Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. Welcome back to Real Conversations, where it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome Liz Ann Saunders, who's the Chief Investment Strategist with Schwab. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Nice summery day here in Connecticut. It's, uh, it's quite nice and warm. There yeah. goes spring, yeah. <laughs> right to summer. <laughs> well, we have a confirmation bias here. We only invite people from Connecticut. So. Okay, yeah, this yeah. was a nice trip, so thanks for the easy commute. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, first, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your 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 professional commute. Okay. You know, talk about how you started and why you are the way that you are, because I think a lot of people who listen to you will you know, kindly and appropriately comment that you just call like it is. I do. So... Can you kind of go back to like 1986? You're at University of Delaware. They're teaching you all this Keynesian stuff. So I, I think maybe further back is, is having been born in Brooklyn and come from parents that were born and raised in Brooklyn. I think that gives me my get to the point and tell it like it is. But in, I studied economics partly in, in college. I, I can't say I loved it all that much. And I had investment-oriented classes and um, the, the chores or homework associated with it, I, I can't say I loved one class. Required reading was Wall Street Journal every day. And what was interesting is um, my father actually gave me a little hint. He said, if you find that you haven't caught up on the market news for the full week, just watch Wall Street Week on Friday night at 8.30. It's right. a good snapshot because, of course, that was before CNBC and before any other yeah. financial television. It was Ruckheiser. Yeah. Louis Ruckheiser. So um, I started doing that. And then what's interesting is when I graduated, I was deciding whether to go right to graduate school for political science. And I decided, nope, I think I should just pound the pavement in New York, start working, and figure out what I want to do before I make the investment in, uh, in graduate school. And I, I interviewed at Wall Street firms, at marketing firms, at ad agencies, you name it. And well, your family wasn't from Wall Street. No, it's no, not no, like no, not far, far from it. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I just, I had this interview at Zweig Avatar, Marty Zweig, and I just, I got a kick out of him, and I really liked the people, and it was small and growing, and I don't know, just that little yeah. voice said, do this. And these were the early days for Marty. This was 1986, yeah. and he was already fairly well known at the time. He had been a regular panelist um, on Wall Street Week yeah. since its inception back mm-hmm. in the early 70s. He was writing what became the best-selling book, Winning on Wall Street. He mm-hmm. had um, mutual funds, and he had one of the earliest hedge funds, Zweig Domena mm-hmm. Partners. And then Avatar, the side I was on, was on the institutional side. And we were tactical asset allocation or market timers. And the coolest experience I had early on was right around the crash of 87. Because in August of 87, we went from fully invested, basically 100% equities, down to between 10 and 20%, depending wow. on which uh, fund. This is your first year out of college. This is first year out of college. <laughs> like, Marty oh, this is how they whip famously goes on Wall Street Week, the Friday night before the crash, and Lou asked him, boy, you seem particularly bearish. Do you think we have a bear market coming? And Marty, in his typical way, said, uh, no, Lou, I think, I think the market's going to crash, and I think it could happen next week. Wow. And then he proceeded to lay out what it would look like, what the rebound would look like, and so you know, then we all get up Monday and come in, and the market crashes. So you know, the naive 22-year-old thinks, oh, well, this is easy. You just figure out before the crash, get out, yeah. and then start buying after. Piece of cake. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Little did I know. So now you're 32, and you still have to time the market. Still have to time the market. <laughs> and, but what was cool is that my very first CNBC TV appearance ever, which was in 1997, about an hour after I was finished, I got a call from the producer of uh, Wall Street Week asking if I wanted to come on as a guest. 
Oh, great. And I did. And then I was asked to be a regular panelist, which was kind of just a neat twist of, of, of fate and, and luck. <laughs> yeah. And it's lucky for people you know, to be kind of able to tap into how you think about markets in the world. Like when, you, when you think about education, investor education, uh, do you split it up between your institutional beginnings and where you are teaching individuals today? I find, actually, that too many people make the mistake of thinking that those are completely different audiences with completely different desires in terms of, of research. And, and you mean bucketing them like, hey, retail guy, rich retail, the guy uh, with all the money, I, you're really kind of dumb. You and you I talked here. about this just before. I think there's an appreciation across the sophistication um, spectrum of get to the point, speak in plain terms, um, and and I, I I find that that was the the same when I had largely institutional clients as it is now with Schwab obviously having mostly individual clients. So I think about how I used to write when when I had a bias more toward the institutional side, mm-hmm. how I would present. And I can't say it's really changed that mm-hmm. that much. Well, we've got we've kind of had similar experiences and paths in that regard because I started institutionally right. in the hedge fund business. Right. And now I, I often struggle trying to communicate you know, certain terms to the individual subscriber or whoever it may be. But the reality is that when I'm behind closed doors with a hedge fund manager, I do have to boil it down the same, same exact way. way. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, Louis Rukeyser gave me probably the best advice on that subject that I have ever gotten. It really was the first thing that put that message in my head, keep it simple. And it was yep. when I was on as a guest, and for those of your viewers who are old enough to remember the show, there was this woman who always would escort the guest out onto the sofa before which, before the show began, Lou would come and say hello, and that was before he'd go out and do his opening monologue. So it was the first time I had met him, shook his hand, he asked me if I was nervous. I said yes. And he said, are your parents still with us? I said, yes. He said, are they, in the, are they in the business? I said, your business or my business? He said, no, no, your business. Are they Wall Street people? Are they finance people? I said, oh, gosh, far from it. Um, he said, okay, do me a favor. When you come out here in 15 minutes to talk to me, get them to understand what you are talking about. I promise you it will pay huge dividends. Huge. So I thought, you know what, here's this iconic person. And I, I also now happen to work for another icon in the business, uh, Chuck Schwab, mm-hmm. who has always done the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he's uh, a tell-it-like-it-is yeah. kind of guy. And you know, this Einstein would say, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Exactly. Now, when you take that point and you kind of bridge it to where we are today in the marketplace, you'll, you'll often hear Main Street uh, complain and call out the impact of real-world inflation. Then you have these gobbledygook guys at the Fed and gals at the Fed now, you know, basically saying, don't worry, there's no inflation. Is that something when you're out there in the channel you hear a lot? I spend a tremendous amount of time answering questions on this subject, talking about it, writing about it, um, in a lot of different facets. First, conceding that the government's methodology for inflation is unquestionably flawed. However, it's been flawed Forever. Yeah, it's apples to apples. So bad apples to bad apples (laughs) in terms of the comparison. And then the additional explanation, well, two sort of two parts. One, explaining why inflation has been low based on those arguably flawed measures, um, particularly core inflation. And then the secondary discussion is why in the world do we care about core inflation versus overall inflation, inclusive Mm -hmm. of food prices and energy prices. And it's clearly not because you and I don't eat or drive cars or heat our homes. But if you think about Fed policy and interest rate policy, all you have to do is look at Europe because the Fed is the only central bank globally 
that not only has two mandates, jobs and inflation, but their inflation mandate is core inflation, mm-hmm. so X food and energy, where every other central bank in the world has this headline inflation. The problem with that is that you don't want a central bank moving interest rates because food prices are up because of a huge drought in the Midwest or in Russia or because there's uh, disruptions in, in Iran and it causes a spike in oil prices. So I try to explain what the rationale is, mm-hmm. but when you think about overall inflation, it has a huge impact on consumption behaviors and how, you know, how healthy we are as a consuming economy. Mm-hmm. It just, I, I agree with the concept of why the Fed doesn't look at inflation overall, because you don't want them pulling those levers based on volatility in commodity prices that may have nothing to do with economics. Yeah, I mean, often I feel like this volatility or transient surprise factor in a commodity is often the scarecrow for the right. Fed, where they're basically going to say, well, I can't do anything here. The reality is that the Federal Reserve has zero, 0% credibility fighting inflation, uh, post Bernanke. I mean, you don't have at $150 oil, you didn't have inflation at the all-time highs in food prices in 2011, 2012. You didn't have inflation, and now with the all-time highs in U.S. rents, you still don't really have inflation, Lizanne. So we need to you think, know, make sure that we tell people that. I think that this may be the year you put inflation back on your radar screen. I don't think we have the from an investable theme perspective. Well, I, I just I, I think it could cause some volatility in the market that we haven't had. Yeah. Um, I, I think if the underlying conditions that might cause it would be very good for the economy. Um, wage growth is starting to pick up. In fact, interestingly, it's really picking up for non-supervisory workers, um, so more of the line workers. Mm-hmm. And th- that inflation, I mean, that wage rate is up to you know high 2% range. And typically when you get close to around 4 that's when inflation starts to go up. The minimum wage is actually pretty inflationary. A lot of people, you know, this it's is one of those at this point. political hot potatoes mm-hmm. that you just get the extremes. Right. Um, so the left views it as a great thing for narrowing the income divide, mm-hmm. and you could argue that's true. The right, of course, says it's a job killer. You could argue that's true. But the reality is that there are trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the trade-offs is that it's inflation. We've had 19 minimum wage hikes in, history, in the history of the minimum wage. Over any normal 12-month period, the CPI goes up about 3%. Mm-hmm. Over every 12-month period, on average, after minimum wage hikes, it's gone up by 47 mm-hmm. So that's a big spread. And the obvious reason is that, if, particularly if you're a company with a lot of low-wage or minimum-wage workers, and your now cost basis goes up, I don't know, 20 30%, mm-hmm. what are you going to at least try to do? Yeah. Pass on the higher costs. Yeah. So I just think, I don't think we have the conditions for a major inflation problem. I just wonder whether maybe... Because the expectation bar has gotten set, set so low, I always am being a contrarian. When, when there's no more air under the expectations bar, you have to start to think, okay. It was, only the, um, it was only the cover of The Economist in November of last year that said the perils of the great deflation. So you still see Wall Street estimates very, very low on yep. inflation. Yep. But again, there's a game within the game. If we're going to tell people that we're going to talk, you know, talk about this topic plainly, uh, the reality is that even the MIT Billion Prices Project is running closer to 4% right now. And as far as I could see, it's mathematically impossible actually to get core CPI above 3. You know, they've changed the calculation so many, so many times, times that they've numbed it down. Yep. So you know, what is the pro- uh, you know, probability in your mind that mainstream America, the 80% that lives on 50000 bucks or less, it's not us, you know, what is the uh, probability that they slow materially if cost of living continues to push 
to higher highs? Well, they probably will continue to slow, but materially would suggest that they've gotten a lift to begin with, down, yeah. down from which they'll yeah. fall, and that's the problem. There's been you know, so little traction um, in this recovery uh, that you, you, percentage-wise you may not see a big drop, but this hoped-for escape velocity mm-hmm. that we're all looking for yeah. is unlikely to come from, from that very huge cohort um, because we're unlikely to see the kind of wage appreciation um, not accompanied yeah, by a two percent wage hike. Like seriously, like a two to three percent wage hike. I mean, in in, in real speak, is not going to do it. Uh, but if you get, uh, what happens if you actually start to see bond yield surprise continue to surprise on the downside, and housing doesn't react? What if we've priced the entire country out of housing? I, uh, to some degree, I think. The demographics around housing suggests that the problems we're dealing with right now are it's a timing problem more than some new secular mm-hmm. problem. Um, when you look at the millennials, the, the echo boom generation, which is a combination of, of generations, but the echo booms, the kids of the baby boom, yep. that's 8 million bigger than the baby boom. Mm-hmm. Right now, household formations are low and home ownership rate is, is low, and that's for a lot of reasons. Uh, the, the muscle memory of the recent housing collapse, tighter lending standards, student loan debt that is stratospheric, weak pain. job market, a lot of pain. Um, and I think also the desire for mobility. A lot of younger people realize that they need to have that flexibility mm-hmm. to go where the jobs are. So mm-hmm. why lock themselves into this long-term housing investment? The problem is, and you touched on it, you know, rents is a big component of inflation. And at some point, if they start to elevate and you're now 29 years old and you're still living with your parents, um, I think the whole idea of household formations will kick in at some point. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's in the, uh, in the near term. I mean, there's the gravity. People just don't want to live in their parents' basement. But then there's also the cost. If you're running at all-time highs in student debt, all-time lows in student employment, there's a pretty obvious mismatch there. Right. So, and, and, you know, this is a jobs problem more than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you look at, like, just shifting to the market, like, I can see why a young person would say, don't go blow myself up in a HELOC like my dad did, or, you know, vice versa. You could see a lot of different people kind of make that um, kind of reflexive decision sure. just not to do it next. How about buying the market at an all-time high? Stock market. It was only... Last year that you saw finally some interest in, in domestic equities, uh, which is remarkable. Both institutionally and individually. In, yeah. in fact, you know, it, it, to me, the, the analysis on what institutions have been doing is almost more interesting than looking at what individuals. I mean, we know individuals, when you look at keeping ETFs aside, because it's not so much anymore a pure proxy for individual investors because they're such active vehicles that institutions mm-hmm. are using. So that's one of the reasons why when we look at fund flows, we keep it to traditional mutual funds because mm-hmm. it's a better proxy yeah, for we individual investors. And so you had the five years from 08 to 2012, 1.1 trillion into bond funds, 550 billion out of equity funds. You finally saw a little bit of that turn. And by the way, we have not been believers or buyers of this whole great rotation, which often suggests that there's going to be some you know pivot moment where you get this mass exodus out of fixed income and it all flies into equities, that it would be a more subtle shift. And we saw a little bit of inflows um, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's remarkable that of that five-year span from 08 to 2012, four and a half years of it was a rip-roaring bull market. You just <laughs> could not get investors interested. Now, they weren't not interested in equities generally, just not interested in U.S. equities. So what's interesting is emerging market equity funds 
took in a ton of money mm-hmm. over the past five years. And I think a lot of that money didn't even realize that the U.S. market not only had done well in an absolute sense, but had been outperforming the emerging market since 2011. But it was sort of blinders yeah. on, I'm just going to avoid. Well, there's, I mean, to me, when you, you, we've kind of sold the country for the last 20, 30 years on this concept that stocks are a growth vehicle. When in reality, you know, there's a lot of yield-chasing vehicles in the U.S. equity market. The entire MLP base, for example, went from $60 billion in market cap to, what, six, $700 billion yeah. now. Uh, and when people get excited, they, get, they want to see that growth. And unfortunately, you know, they got eviscerated in being long emerging market growth last year. And if you're long like social media growth this year, after being long emerging market equity growth. Well, it, if you're overly concentrated only where the momentum is and you don't care about valuation, exactly. you're probably going to get burned. I think we had a major valuation problem in those small subsets of the market that at least so far is correcting within a market that's otherwise not You mean the bubbliness, like the biotechs? Yeah, the, the biotechs and the emerging internet. Yeah. Um, but they, they did not represent the kind of meat of the market as the ridiculously overvalued names represented back in 2000. So, you know, in 2000, the NASDAQ was trading at 194 times earnings. <laughs> it's 20 now. So I just think we're too quick to attach the bubble term to almost anything. There's this almost paranoia on the part of the burned investors not to get burned again. Mm-hmm. So I would say the number one theme of questions I get is, what's the next shoe drop? What keeps you up at night? What's the next crisis? Everyone is so attuned to yeah. it. You know, therein is the wall of worry. But do you disagree with that? I mean, people have been completely decimated. Like, if you go bubble to bubble to bubble, I mean, we can start this when you started your career in 1987, or you can start it in 2006 with housing, or you can go to gold, you can go to real estate. We can go all the way. Every year we kind of move from a bubble to the next bubble. Yeah. We keep blowing Oil, up these bubbles. Oil, Japan, tech, I know. So, so do you think that any of this, you know, just gets full circle back to the Fed? That there's yes. a causal debate out there that should just be eliminated? Why have a dual policy? Why have a, a, a fully... You know, interacting Fed. Why have central planning? Why don't we just let this thing clear and go back to a, to a normalized place? I, I think certainly looking back in hindsight at the financial crisis, the let it just clear probably would have been the better option. Yeah. It, it, it's the reality of, of what's happening at that time, mm. um, where certainly politicians want to do everything they can not to let things completely fall apart. Yeah. And so, I, look, I think, I think the blame associated with bubbles, particularly the, the most recent one or two, you need, you need all fingers on both hands to point uh, to the appropriate parties. <laughs> uh, so I think the Fed is definitely one of those, maybe even two fingers. Yeah. But I, I think there's plenty of... I give at uh, least 80% of your fingers government fingers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, uh, you know, there were plenty of individuals, homebuyers, yeah. who were just kind of... I mean, we we look at this a lot, like, I don't know if you've seen this work or not, but we've been very aggressive in our research views of the Kinder Morgans, Atlas Energy, MLP, kind of accounting tomfoolery. Yeah, I I blissfully don't uh, go into the weeds of that stuff anymore. You don't want to go into the weeds. I don't want to go into the weeds. Because it it revives a lot of these, uh, you remember Prubeish? Remember them getting into trouble? The, The way that they got into trouble is not dissimilar from the way that these Wall Street bankers are structuring these yield-chasing assets. Do you get people asking you about this a lot, individuals who are just trying to get that 6 to 8% Whether it's MLPs, yield. whatever it is, high yield, 
Um, and it's not just our investors. I think that's one of the, the reasons you're seeing what you're seeing, not just in the U.S., but globally, uh, is this desperate search for, it is for desperate. reasonable yield. Really? Now, it's purposeful on the part of the Fed. I mean, that was their, one of their stated reasons for doing quantitative easing was to jam rates down so much that it forced people out the risk spectrum. Um, I just don't know if it's had the impact on the macro economy that they would have liked. It's mm-hmm. had tremendous impact on asset prices, right. but it hasn't filtered into the economy. I have a little bit of a different view. I actually think that quantitative easing has been, at least more recently, has been a huge confidence negative on the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that You it, mean because people just don't trust it? They don't trust it. They don't understand the exit strategy. And they, I think in many cases, feel like we are still treating the patient as if it's in trauma. No, six years ago. And Jen, I mean, I, QE1, I think, was like, you know, John Travolta slamming the uh, needle in Uma Thurman's heart in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> like, the patient was DOA, and it needed, it needed. But now I feel like the patient is trying to get out of the hospital. And they're still stuck to all the tubes. And they're like, would you please let me just go exactly. try to do this? on my own and operate on my own engines. And that's why I think you see this uptick in business confidence, large companies, small companies. You see lending growth uh, picking up pretty meaningfully, particularly C&I lending. You're seeing all these leading indicators of CapEx picking up. I think not coincidentally tied to when the Fed started tapering. Yeah, I agree. Like just some sense of, okay, at least we're starting to take steps towards something akin to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is, is a well. If you, if you want a real cycle to occur, and this is one point that you've made, uh, I think most recently on the capex cycle. If you go back to like the 1994 period, there was a natural allowance, I guess, of interest rates to rise. Greenspan had to catch right. up 50 beeps at yep. a time. Now I'm sitting there and I say, I can't own a bond. I can't sit here on this risk-free zero percent yield chasing thing. I need to invest. Right. I need to hire. Why would somebody do that this time in the face of no interest rate hikes? I think. From a business perspective, uh, there's a hu- we have a huge age problem. Um, I know I have an age problem. <laughs> I got a tragic birthday coming up soon. Um, but you know, the, the capital stock is uh, extraordinarily old. So there's been just a, a dearth of capex, yeah. and it's not just in this most recent recovery. Remember, there was not a big capex cycle in the last recovery because the earnings hit from the tech crash was so severe that that's when businesses mm-hmm. really went through their deleveraging process. Yep. Um, so you have a, a, the spread between you know the stock of capital and the age of capital is incredibly wide uh, right now. Um, we're historically, it's usually close to about a 60-40 split between inv- long-term investments by companies of their cash or returning to shareholders via buybacks. Or, and now that's almost the mirror image um, in the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And now I think one of the interesting forces may be activist hedge funds, mm-hmm. which have grown in droves. And a lot of them two years ago were pushing for companies to buy back stock. But now a lot of them are saying enough with returning cash to shareholders. Now it's deals or long-term yeah, pay me now. CapEx. So this is what you know, we call it affectionately, pay me now. I mean, that's kind of the world that we're in. If you're really Bill Ackman and you have that 10-day window, you can get paid right, right. now. The market's going to pay you right. for that. So yep. it's kind of an interesting... Yep. No wonder why people get you know, a little nervous about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much. My I appreciate, your, uh, I appreciate your time. It's we'll been, definitely hope fun. to have you back. Thanks. Thanks. She's Lizanne Saunders. I'm Keith McCullough. That's my Twitter handle. And if we can find Lizanne on Twitter, we'll give you her, uh, <laughs> her tweet handle, too.
<laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Hedgeye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to Hedgeye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit Hedgeye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis. The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.